0: Once again, thanks for being with us and welcome to week number five, actually, in a conversation that we have been in called Winning the Battle Within. And so if you are a guest with us here today at Grace, or if you're just kind of jumping in for the first time, uh, man, thank you so much for being here. We're so glad to have you. Like I said, you're you're kind of catching us a little bit towards the end of a conversation. And so if you are just tuning in, let me kind of recap for you uh, the topic that we've been talking through together um, in, this, in this conversation, in this series. So basically what we've been doing together is uh, is we've actually been kind of asking the question, and this is just kind of the way that we've put it. We've been asking the question, how do we become people who are more like thermostats and are less like thermometers? And of course, if you've been with us, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, But if you are a guest with us, what we mean by that is this. We said that as it relates to interacting and navigating through the circumstances of life, that there's really one of two ways you can do that, right? You can either do that like a thermostat, or you could do that like a thermometer, And so all of us know how those two devices work, right? A thermometer is a device that by design always reflects, reacts, and is defined by its external circumstances. We said a thermostat, on the other hand, and all of us know how a thermostat works, right? A thermostat is an instrument that maintains a constant climate regardless of what external weather might be. So whether it's hot outside or cold outside or whatever, a thermostat is going to maintain a consistent internal climate that is works off of a predetermined number. And so here's what we've been saying, man, how do we become people that are more like thermostats and less like thermometers? How do we become people who are not defined by, defeated by our external circumstances of life? How do we become people where the the, the circumstances that we face don't determine how we are and don't determine who we are? But how do we become people instead who regardless of what's happening in our life, regardless of external circumstances, we remain consistent consistent in our character, consistent in our conduct, consistent in our convictions? Like, how do we become people like that? And of course, the, the story that we've been looking at together to help us in this conversation has been a pretty famous story in the Bible, a story of a guy named Joseph. And that's what we've been looking at here together. There's actually a A couple different Josephs in the Bible. There's the Mary and Joseph of the Christmas story. That's actually not the Joseph we're talking about. We're actually talking about the Joseph of the Old Testament, a guy, you find his story in the book of Genesis. And the reason we've been navigating and looking at his story is because we said Joseph was a guy who faced some very extreme circumstances, Right. We said Joseph faced, quite honestly, more extreme, more fluctuating circumstances in his life than any of us ever will. And yet the fascinating thing about Joseph, when you look at his story, is even though he's got all of these crazy, turbulent, fluctuating situations he remains the same in his convictions and his character. He exemplifies what it means to be a thermostat through it all. In fact, let me just recap with you a little bit, give you an example of some of the different situations and circumstances that we have found Joseph in so far in our story. So here's what we found. We said that, man, Joseph's circumstances were all over the place. When we first were introduced to Joseph back in Genesis chapter 37, you might remember if you were here, Joseph was a young dude. He was 17 years old. We said that Joseph came from a very dysfunctional family, right? So he came from just kind of a messy family, and his brothers hated him. The Bible tells us, in fact, that his brothers uh, attempted to murder him, but then at the last minute, they changed course and decided to sell him into slavery. So that's how Joseph's story begins. We said, man, what a rough situation. And we said, well, from there, it gets even more interesting, because what happens is Joseph is uprooted from his family. He is uprooted from his country. He is deported to a different country where he serves in slavery in Egypt to a guy named Potiphar. So we watched Joseph as a young guy get uprooted from his family. He, you know, leaves his country to go to Egypt. He becomes a slave. And we said the crazy thing about Joseph is even in this turbulent circumstance, he remains the same in his convictions and in his conduct and in his character. And then we said, man, the story goes from bad to even worse, and we said, so what happens for Joseph is because of his character, not in spite of his character, because of his character, we found that Joseph was falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit and he gets thrown in prison, And we said, man, here's Joseph, and his situation goes from bad to worse to even worse, and now he's in prison. And we said, but the crazy thing is, is even when Joseph was in prison, he did not allow his circumstances to get the better of him. And we watched Joseph maintain consistency in his character and his convictions. And then we said Joseph's circumstances took a really incredible turn. And if you were here, you might remember this. We said that Joseph, through a really, really interesting set of events, got introduced to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt, the most powerful person in the most powerful kingdom in the known world at that time. And the Bible says Joseph gets introduced to him. Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph that through a really interesting set of situations that Joseph gets promoted to becoming the prime minister of Egypt. In other words, Joseph goes from being a nobody in prison to becoming the most powerful person, the second most powerful person in the known world at that time more power, more, more affluence than any of us will ever imagine or ever see Joseph had. And we said, what's crazy is even in such amazing affluence and success and so much power, Joseph continued to be the same person. His character and his convictions stayed the same. And then last week, if you were here, you might remember, we looked at the emotionally charged scene in the Bible, one of the greatest scenes in the whole story where Joseph was reunited with his brothers, the same brothers who sold him into slavery, the same brothers who tried to kill him. We said Joseph was reunited with them and Joseph had all the power to do whatever he wanted to them. And yet even in that emotionally charged circumstance, Joseph stayed true to his convictions and his character. He forgave his brothers and he, he, he decided to act kindly to them. And the question we've been asking is, man, here's Joseph in all of these crazy situations and he's just staying the same. His convictions and his character are remaining strong. And the question is, how did he do it? How did Joseph do that? And then how do we do it? How do we become people like that as well? And so we said this, we said, the story of Joseph reveals to us what we've been calling five internal perspectives Joseph was a man who had these internal perspectives that allowed him to act in the ways that he did in the midst of his circumstances. So each week, we've been looking at one of those different uh, perspectives. And so let me just review what we've seen so far. We said that perspective number one, Joseph was a man who was firmly convinced and absolutely believed, God is with me and he sees me. Joseph was fully confident of this. God is with me and he sees me. Then we said perspective number two, Joseph was absolutely confident, completely convinced, God is with me and he sustains me. The last week we looked at the third perspective. We said Joseph was a man who was completely convinced God is with me and he sends me. And of course, if you were here, you might remember the question that we've been asking ourselves is this, what would somebody in your present circumstances do who is completely confident and convinced that these things were true? What would someone in your life circumstances right now, your situation who is convinced God is with me and he sees me, God is with me and he sustains me, God is with me and he sends me, what would they do if they were in your shoes? By the way, if you missed those previous conversations, I'd actually really encourage you to go back and listen to those. I think it would be to your advantage if you missed them Uh, because we've covered a lot of ground. And so you can listen to those, watch those, subscribe to our podcast, go to our website. All of that, of course, is for free. But today, as we continue in this conversation, we're gonna get the opportunity to look at perspective number four. And to do that, I wanna encourage you to grab your Bibles, and why don't we return to the story? We're gonna go to Genesis chapter 50, okay? So get your Bibles out, why don't you take them with me, and we're gonna go to Genesis chapter 50. Uh, By the way, Genesis 50 is gonna be on page thirty-eight. In those Bibles that we have provided for you. So feel free to to use those. And then if you don't own a Bible, like if you don't physically have a copy, take one of ours. We would just love for you to have a Bible. So Genesis chapter 50, however you get there, go ahead and get there. Now, as you're finding that, uh, let me just kind of quickly recap a little bit of what has happened since last week. So last week we were in Genesis chapter 45. This week we're picking it up in Genesis chapter 50. So here's what happens between. 45 and 50. Essentially, Joseph is reunited with his brothers. We saw last week, Joseph chose to forgive his brothers. But not only does he choose to forgive his brothers, the Bible says that Joseph takes it a step further. And Joseph looks at his brothers and he says to them, I want you guys to go get your families. I want you to go get dad. I want you to get your wife and your kids. And I want you guys to come and I want you to move over here with me. And so the Bible says that's exactly what happens. All of the brothers go back. They get their father, they get their kids, about 70 people in total. And Joseph's entire family moves in with Joseph in Egypt. And the Bible says for 17 years, Joseph provides for them, Joseph cares for them, Joseph makes sure that their kids are provided for. It's an amazing act of kindness on Joseph's part. And we see that in that 17, year, the 17 years, Joseph is reunited with his father, who he has been, you know, he's, he's been disengaged with since he was a 17-year-old guy. The Bible says that he gets to spend some time with his father. Now, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 50, we're going to find that Joseph is now probably in his mid to late 50s. So help me out. Remind me, how old was Joseph when we first met him? He was how old? He was 17, right? Now, when we're in Genesis chapter 50, he's about probably 57, so this is 40 years, 40 years after the initial event that we saw in Genesis chapter 37. And the Bible tells us that by the time we get to Genesis chapter 50, Joseph is probably in his mid to late 50s at this point, And we find that Joseph's father has now passed away. So Joseph's father is now gone. Jacob has passed away. And this is where we're gonna pick up the story beginning in verse 15. So let's look at this together. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and he pays us back for all of the wrong things that we did to him? So I want you to pause here for a minute. I want you to notice after Joseph's father passed away, they had the funeral, they they buried their dad. And the Bible says that after that happened, the brothers became a little bit panic-stricken. They started to get a little bit paranoid and they, they looked at each other and they said, well, now that dad's gone, what if Joseph has been waiting for this moment so that now he can exact revenge on us for the terrible things that we did to him. Like, you know, we sold him into slavery. We tried to kill him. Now that dad's gone, who's to say that Joseph hasn't been holding out for this moment so that now he's going to get his revenge? So you got to remember something that back in Genesis 37, and you might remember this if you were with us, when Joseph's brothers attempted to murder Joseph and they sold him into slavery, one of the only reasons they did that is because their father wasn't watching, right? When dad was watching, they all tried to get along. But when dad wasn't, watch, wasn't watching, that was when they tried to kill their brother and sell him into slavery. So now the brothers, their logic is, well, dad's gone, so maybe Joseph is going to try to get back at us now, now that dad's not around. So, so watch what the brothers do. Check this out. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Okay, so I want you to notice this. The brothers concoct this plan. And their plan is basically let's fabricate a letter. Right? This is totally, totally a fake letter from dad. And so this is what they do. And what does the letter say? Here's what the letter says. Verse 17. This is what you're say, to say to Joseph. Ask, ask, I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs that they committed in telling and treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of your servants of the God of your father. So you see, you see what they're doing in this letter, right? They fabricate this letter. They send it to Joseph. They say it's from their father. And basically the letter says, dad said, don't be mad at us. Signed, the brothers. That was pretty much what it was. They were like, dad said it, his dying words. We heard it. He said, forgive us, don't be mad at us, don't hold a grudge against us. And so they send this letter to Joseph and Joseph gets it, he opens it. And I want you to notice what his response is in the, in the second part of verse 17. When their message came to him, I think this is interesting. The Bible says Joseph's response was that he wept. Joseph, Joseph wept. I think that's fascinating. If you've been uh, reading the story along with us, you may notice that this is actually a, a pretty common theme. Uh, that whenever Joseph interacts with his brothers, that the actions that they, uh, that they inflict upon him cause him to weep. This is the fifth time we see this happening. I think it causes us to ask this question, right? Why, why does Joseph weep? Why does he weep? Why is that his reaction? And here's the thing, right? We don't actually know. The Bible doesn't really tell us why Joseph weeps, but I think we could probably speculate a little bit here. In fact, I'll just give you my opinion, And and again, this is my opinion, so take it or leave it. This isn't what the Bible says. But let me tell you what I think. Here's what I think. I think maybe the reason that Joseph weeps. I think that Joseph's a pretty smart guy. And my guess is when Joseph gets this letter from their brothers that says, dad says, don't be mad at us, my guess is he probably sees right through it. He probably recognizes that this is a fabricated letter and that his brothers are trying to take control of the situation and protect themselves. And my guess is that maybe one of the reasons he weeps is because, well, first off, it probably reawakens a lot of emotion. When they said, um, forgive your brothers for the terrible things that they have done to you, that would have reminded him of the terrible things that his brothers had done to him. And now we're 40 years after this and it's still emotionally charged. There still is emotion attached to this. But I think maybe this is the bigger thing. And again, this is just my opinion. I think maybe the bigger reason Joseph weeps is maybe he weeps for his brothers. I can't help but wonder if maybe he reads this letter and quite honestly, when he sees it, maybe he thinks to himself, man, you know, I've forgiven these guys and for the past 17 years, I have helped and provided for them. And this is what they think. They think I've just been waiting to get back at him. I can't help but wonder if maybe his heart just breaks. Maybe his heart just breaks. Maybe he thinks to himself, Man, what anxiety these guys must have lived with for the past 17 years to think that this is the kind of person that I am. But for whatever reason, Bible says Joseph weeps. And then watch this next thing. So his brothers then came and they threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. So apparently this plan that the brothers had was a two-part plan. Step one was uh, send a letter to Joseph from dad um, to prime the pump. And then step two is let's throw our feet at Joseph and tell him we'll do whatever he wants us to do. That sounds like a pretty good plan. And so watch Joseph's response. I think Joseph's response here is so incredible. Check this out, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of me. Am I in the place of God? And then he says, verse 20, and verse 20 is probably the most famous verse in the entire Joseph's story. It's probably the most quoted verse in the entire Joseph's story. It's such a strong verse. Look what Joseph says. He says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I love what Joseph says. What an incredible perspective. Joseph says, don't be afraid of me. Don't be scared of me. He says, what you did, you intended it for harm. You intended it for evil. But he says, but God intended it for good. I've wanted to do a sermon series for a while now called The Great Butts of the Bible. You guys think that would be a good sermon series? I think maybe we'll put up some, some, uh, you know, some, what are they called? Uh, billboards or something like that for that one. So great buts, but I think this is one of the greatest buts. But God intended it. You meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. What a powerful perspective Joseph has. We actually talked a little bit about this last week, about this perspective that Joseph had. But what I want you to notice this week, and what I really wanna pay attention to is actually something that Joseph says in verse 19. I think there's something that Joseph says that is so insightful and that is so powerful because it gives us a window into Joseph's unique perspective in this situation. And it's this, I just want you, I think this is so powerful. Notice what he says. But Joseph said, don't be afraid. Now here it is. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? And again, again, I think that this little question, this little statement that Joseph says right here I think this is so incredibly insightful and so incredibly powerful because it gives us a window into Joseph's thinking, into Joseph's heart, into Joseph's perspective, and how he views the situation. Am I in the place of God? In fact, I think it's so powerful. I actually just want to spend the rest of our time thinking about this little statement. Am I in the place of God? God. That's interesting. If you take this little question, this little statement, and you bring it back into the original language, there's a couple ways you could translate it. Here's one way you can translate it. You could translate it this way. Am I in the stead of God? That's one way to say it. Here's another way to say it. Do I stand in the place that God stands? That's another way that you could translate it. So you see what Joseph is saying right? Here's what Joseph is saying. His brothers come to him and they say, please forgive us. Please don't hold a grudge against us. Please don't enact vengeance towards us. And Joseph says to him, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why? I, I, that is not my place. That's not my place. In other words, he says, that's not the seat that I sit in. That's not my chair. That's God's place. That's God's seat. That's God's chair. And I am not in the place of God. That's what Joseph says here. Now, now listen, I think that that is so important. And here's why. I think that what Joseph is tapping into right here is he is actually tapping into a very important theme that you are going to find all throughout the Bible, a very, very important theme, and that's this. So I want you to pay close attention. So look up here for a minute. So if you haven't been paying attention to what I've been saying, if maybe you've been counting the ceiling tiles or whatever, I want you to come back up here for a second, okay? Because here's what I want you to get. If you hear nothing else that I say today, I want you just to hear this, all right? I think when Joseph says this, he is tapping into a very important theme that you are going to find all throughout the Bible, and here is that theme. The Bible is gonna teach us in so many different places in so many different ways this idea that putting ourselves in the place of God is quite honestly at the heart of most of our problems. Let me just say it again. I think what Joseph is tapping into, you're gonna find this all throughout the Bible, that at the heart, at the source, at the root of so many of our problems and issues that we face in life, If you drill all the way down, what you'll find is that this is oftentimes the key issue, is that there is an inclination for us to wanna put ourselves in the place that only God can occupy, that we try to sit in the chair that only God can sit in. I believe the source of so much of our pain, so much of our frustration, so much of our anxiety, so much of our worry, so much of our bitterness, so much of our resentment, if you drill down to it, I believe at the heart of so much of it is this issue, that there is an inclination for us to sit in the place that only God can occupy. Some of you are like, well, what do you mean by that? Can you give me an example of what you're talking about? Well, sure. Let me give you two. I'll give you two examples, and there's so many more, but i'll give you two right from the passage that we're reading. i think one of them that you see right here in this passage, one of the big problems, one of the big symptoms of us trying to put ourselves in the place of god is worry and anxiety. i think worry and i think so much of the worry and anxiety that we face in this life, quite honestly, if you drill down to it, it finds its roots in an inclination to want to sit in the seat that only God can occupy. Now, notice I said so much of our worry and anxiety. I'm not saying all worry and anxiety stems from this. I think when you're talking about broad topics like worry and anxiety, we have to be careful to recognize that there are physiological considerations. So I'm not trying to discount that. But I think that for most of us, quite honestly, the worry and anxiety that we face in this life, if you drill down to it at the very heart of the issue, oftentimes is this. It's an inclination to want to sit in the seat that only God can occupy. You're like, where do you see that? Well, do you notice in the passage, do you notice Joseph's brothers? When you look at Joseph's brothers, what are they doing? Oh, they're full of anxiety. They're full of worry. They're full of fear, right? They're they're forecasting every possible worst-case scenario that could happen. They're thinking through all of the what ifs. Hey, what if Joseph holds a grudge? What if since dad's gone, now he wants to kill us? What if Joseph wants to get vengeance from us? They're thinking through all of the what ifs and all the worst case scenarios. And so as a result of that, they're full of fear and they're full of anxiety. And so what do they do as a result of that? Well, what we see them do is we see them begin to strategize and try to manipulate and control the circumstance to their advantage. And so they lie. God doesn't want them to lie. They box out God's commandments. They fabricate a letter. Dad said, don't be mad at us. They throw themselves down as slaves. What are they doing? Here's what they're doing. They're acting out of anxiety. They're acting out of fear. They're trying to control and manipulate their circumstances to get the desired outcome that they think is the best outcome. I think that it's so much of the heart of worry and anxiety is this issue of a need for control. Control it is easy for us to fall into the same mentality that the brothers do. Just think about it for a minute. When we find ourselves in a place of worry and anxiety, what are we doing? Here's what we're doing. We're laying in bed at night or whatever, and we are thinking through all of the possible worst-case scenarios, all of the what-ifs. We're forecasting all of the different options and outcomes of what can happen, and it fills us with fear. We get scared because we don't know what's gonna happen and we don't know. And then what we do is we decide which, thing, which we think is the best outcome and then we try to control and manipulate circumstances to achieve the outcome that we think is best. And oftentimes we will do that boxing out the commandments of God. If I gotta lie, if I gotta, do whatever it takes for me to get the outcome I gotta get, I'm just gonna do that because I'm gonna control this outcome to get the thing. And so what we do when we worry oftentimes is we take the seed of God we say, I need to, you know, I don't trust that God is gonna get the job done. I think I know what needs to happen. I think I know what, what is best. And so I'm gonna try to control the situation to that desirable outcome. Let me give you a specific example of what I'm talking about. So this might not come as a surprise to you, uh, but I'm a, a pastor here on staff at Grace. Well, that actually might surprise you. But what might not surprise you is that as a pastor uh, here on staff at Grace, I get the, the unique privilege of getting a chance to sit down with people on a pretty regular basis who are processing through, you know, major decisions or, or you know, uh, options or opportunities or dilemmas in their life. So for whatever reason, sometimes people wanna sit down to, as a sounding board and kind of think things through. So I get the, the privilege to do that. And so what I have found is actually pretty, pretty interesting. There's a common, there's kind of a common response and so basically what happens is I'll sit down, I'll hear from someone. And in those meetings, I try my best just to listen, listen to the opportunity, listen to the, to the problem, listen to the dilemma, listen to the, to the you know, whatever it might be, the, the, uh, the decision. And honestly, I try my hardest not to give my opinion because let's just be honest, my opinion doesn't really matter. I'm not like the smartest guy in the world. So I try to just listen, but then what I do do, I feel like what I can offer is I'll take them to the Bible, and I'll say, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think I understand your situation. Um, let me show you some considerations of what the Bible teaches. And so we'll do that. We'll open the Bible, and I'll say, here's what I think the Bible says. Here's what I think it means. And then when someone says, well, what do you think I should do? A lot, a lot of times what I do is I say, I think you should, I think you should do what it says. I think, I think you should just do what the Bible says here. I think That would be probably your best option forward and the most fascinating thing happens when this when this when this occurs and i'm not excluding myself cuz i do the same i do the exact same thing but the most amazing thing happens is a lot of times in that moment it's a miracle that person becomes a prophet and they can tell the future i mean it's amazing so i'll give you an example i'll be sitting there and i'll say you know i'll hear i'll hear a dilemma and i'll say wow that's that's challenging that is complicated and Man, that is just, that, that's a lot to process through. And they'll say, what do you think I should do? I'll say, I'll tell you what, I, this is what I think the Bible says. Here's what I think, you know what I think you ought to do? I think you should be honest. I think maybe you should tell the truth. I think maybe you ought to come clean. And then immediately the person says, no, 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 I can't. I can't do that. I can't do that. And I'll say, well, why not? And they'll say, do you know what would happen if I did that? And I say, no, in fact, I don't. In fact, neither do you, right? And, and they say, no, 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 this is what's going to happen. If I tell the truth, then they're going to leave, or they're going to whatever, or this is what they're going to say, or I'm going to lose the job, or I'm going to do whatever. And a lot of times, they'll say, how do you know that? And they'll say, well, I just, I just know that. And I, and I think to myself, but you don't know that. You, you don't know that. What if, what if you told the truth and it happens to go a totally different, what if you told the truth and that was, in fact, the very thing that God wanted to use to change your circumstance? Or what if you did lose your job? Or what if you did lose the, and what if that was actually the very best thing that could happen in the situation at that time? I'll talk to someone and I'll you know, we'll be hearing about something and I'll say, man, I, I hear what you're saying. You know what I think you should do? I, I'll just kind of clue you guys in. This is the number one biggest piece of advice I end up giving to people. I'll say, you know what I think you should do? It sounds like that person has really inflicted a lot of harm on you. It sounds like that is really bothering you. I think you should go and talk to that person about it face to face. we did a whole series on this, Matthew 18, conflict resolution. I think you should go talk to him. So many times the response, no, I can't do that. why not? Well, because if I did that, they're gonna say this. And then if they say that, then I'm probably going to say this. And then when I say that, oh, no, oh, no, because then they're going to say this. And then this is what. And I'm like, that's amazing. You know how the whole conversation is going to go. You must know the future. And I'm thinking, you don't know that. You don't know, how, you don't know what God might have in store if you, if you did that, right? I'm talking to young men, young ladies sometimes, and they'll tell me about relationship dynamics. And a lot of times I say, boy, that's I hear what you're saying. You know what I think you should do? I think you should honor God in your relationship. I think you should. I think you should not give in to the demands of your boyfriend and honor God. And a lot of times, oh, I can't do that. Why not? Well, they'll break up with me. And if they break up with me, I'm never gonna find anyone like them again. And I'm gonna grow old and I'm gonna be lonely and I'm gonna be 80 years old and I'm gonna be the cat lady. And I'm like... That's amazing to me that you know that far in your future, right? That's unbelievable to me that you, listen, here's the reality. I've I've heard someone say this. I thought it was so powerful. I heard someone say one time, worry is a type of false prophecy. And how is that? Well, here's what we do when we worry. When we worry, we predict what we think every possible outcome of the scenario is going to be. And then we decide what we think the best outcome should be, and then we try to control the circumstance to achieve that outcome. And I think God would probably look at us in our worry and in our anxiety, and I think he might tap us on the shoulder, and I think he might say, um, <clears throat> pardon me, I think you're in my chair. Because, come on, let's be honest, none of us knows the future. None of us... Our destiny isn't something that is simply determined by us. God is the one who holds our future and says, and let's be honest, for most of us, we don't even actually know what we need. We think we know what we need, but we don't actually know what we need, but our heavenly father truly knows what we need. And so one of the ways that this shows up when we try to occupy God's chair is through worry and anxiety. Let me give you a second way, right from the text, that this shows up. I think another way it shows up is through bitterness and grudges. Bitterness and grudges. When we try to stand in God's, the place where God stands, when we try to sit in His seat, oftentimes it results in bitterness, resent, you know, resentful uh, attitudes, these types of things, grudges. You're like, where's this coming from? Well, I think it's fascinating if you notice in the story, Joseph's response to his brothers. So again, Joseph's brothers come to him. They said, "Please forgive us. Don't hold a grudge against us. Please don't try to get vengeance on us." And do you notice Joseph's response? I think this is really interesting. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Of course, I've forgiven you. Of course, I don't hold a grudge. Of course, I'm not trying to get vengeance on you is what he says. And then he says, am I in the place of God? Now, I want you to really think this through with me. What are the implications of this statement? If you think about it, it's actually a little scary. Here's the implications. What Joseph is saying is, if I were to hold on to a grudge or if I were to hold on to a sense of vengeance... I would be sitting in God's chair. Now, what are the implications for us? If we are holding a grudge or we are holding on to resentments or bitterness, we are are sitting in a seat that only God can occupy. See, I think Joseph here is a man who believes stuff like what it says in Romans chapter 12. What does it say in Romans 12? Well, here's what the apostle Paul says in Romans 12. He says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, now this is key, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Translation, it's my seat. That's my chair. That's my place to take vengeance, to avenge. What's our job? Don't, don't overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's our, that's our job. You see, I think Joseph believed this. I think Joseph was a man who firmly believed this. That's not my seat, man. His brother's like, forgive us, please, don't show vengeance. And Joseph's like, I don't, I, I got no, listen, that's not my seat, man. Of course I forgive you. Of course I'm not holding a grudge against you. Why? Because that's not my place. That's not my seat. That's not my chair. See, I think, I think what Joseph recognizes is perspective number four. And I put it this way, if you're taking notes, maybe you can jot this down. I think Joseph was a man who firmly believed this, that God is with me and he defends me. God is with me. And he defends me. I don't need to sit in the place of judgment or vengeance with the people who have inflicted the most harm on me. Why? Because God's with me. Because God is with me. And and I believe Joseph was a man who was firmly convinced of this, that God will take full responsibility of a person whose life is fully devoted to him. Joseph says, if I live a life fully devoted to God, then you know what? He'll take care of me. I don't need to sit in that chair. I don't have to sit in that chair. God will be the one who defends me. I think he believed this. See, I think Joseph was a man who came to understand two things that I think every single one of us in this room need to come to understand, and that's this. Number one, we are not qualified to sit in God's seat. And number two, we don't have to sit in God's seat. We're not qualified, we don't have to. I think it's interesting, if you look at Joseph's response, he says, am I in the place of God? And it's fascinating. The word God, some of you might know this. In the Hebrew language, there's a lot of different words that can be used for God that are translated God in the English language. And the name that's used here is actually the name Elohim. And Elohim literally means the creator and the judge. And so you see what Joseph is saying. He says, am I the creator? Am I the judge? So in other words, what Joseph is saying, he's saying, I'm, I recognize I'm not qualified sit in I am not qualified to enact justice in an appropriate way because I'm not the creator and I'm not the judge. And I think, you guys, this is an important thing for us to get a hold of, too, is that, quite honestly, we're not qualified. We're not qualified to enact justice in a proper way because, quite honestly, we see things from a limited vantage point. When someone wrongs us or hurts us very quickly, we can try to judge the motives of that person, and then we can determine what we think the proper act of justice is might be. But here's the truth. We don't actually know that. There's so much we don't know. We don't know that person's background. We don't know their physiological, psychological makeup. There's so many things we do not know. And so because of that, we're not qualified to sit in that seat. I'll give you guys a a kind of a small, silly example of what I'm talking about. Um, So uh, hopefully this will just kind of clarify the point. Uh, If you're familiar with the Medina area, is anyone, is anyone familiar with that light on 18, the traffic light right in front of Bueller's? You guys know what I'm talking about? You guys know, okay. So um, some of you are chuckling already. You probably know where I'm going. So, uh, so I, I'm from Medina here, and I travel that way quite a bit. And what I've noticed is if you're going east on 18, so if you're going from the square to the church and you go past that light, that at certain times of the day, it can get pretty congested there, right? So when there's a high volume of traffic, that happens. Now, it's Medina traffic, so it's kind of a joke. It's like, oh, I have to wait three minutes or whatever. But it can be kind of annoying. And so if you happen to hit that light at the right time of day, it's a single lane of traffic. And sometimes you have to wait two or three iterations of the light before it's your turn to get through it, right? Well, here's what I've noticed, and maybe you did too. If if I'm sitting at that light, I've noticed that every once in a while, for whatever reason, there is a car that decides that they don't want to wait in that line. And so they will ride in the berm, which is not a, it's not a lane, right? It's a berm. They'll ride over in the berm and just go past everybody and then either cut back in line at the end or like pull into the Bueller's parking lot, right? They'll kind of do one of those two things. Now, I've noticed this infuriates a lot of people and I may or may not be one of them, all right? And uh, and so when I watch people do this, I have horns are going off, fingers are going up, things are being said, And I got to admit, I got to admit, when I see this happen, my first inclination is to think, what a jerk. That's my first thought. What a jerk. How impatient, right? How selfish to just cut in front. of That's typically my first thought. I I oftentimes think, man, if I could get that person out of their car and in front of me, I would, you know, wash their feet and pray for them. (laughs) them You laugh. You laugh because I lie, right? So, But anyway, that was what I thought. I thought, they're only doing that because they're selfish and they're a jerk. That's why they're doing it. And I thought that until exactly about two months ago. So two months ago, it was morning, and I was uh, by the kind of the west side of Medina. And as I was out there, I got a text from my wife. And it said, my water broke. We need to go to the hospital. We're having a baby. And I read that, and I said, oh. And I looked at the people I was with, and I said, I've got to go. And I got in the car, and I drove as fast as I could to get back to where my wife was, and I had to go through that light by Bueller's. So when I get there, wouldn't you know it, there's a huge line of people that are there. So I'm like, oh, no. So I get in line, and I look, and the berm is totally open. <laughs> and so can, can, you, can you guess what I did? I did the cardinal sin, right? And I, I, I just flew through the berm, and I mean, I was getting fingers, and I was, I mean, I was getting berated. One guy even tried to pull his car in front of me so that I would hit him, and the whole time, I wanted to so desperately explain myself. I wanted to say, I'm not a jerk, I promise, my wife's having a baby, so let me through! Like, that's what I was thinking. So anyway, got through, everything went fine, it was great, but I've noticed something since then, that whenever I find myself in that situation and people do that, now I'm a little more careful. I'm a little more careful. When I see someone do that, I'm like, what a jerk, and I'm like, well, wait a minute, I don't know that. I don't know that, I gotta be careful with that. Now, let's be honest, 99% of the time, they're just being a jerk, which by the way, if you're a person that does that, I just wanna tell you, Jesus loves you, okay, he does. The rest of us are really struggling. And so, someone needs to tell you that, and I will. Okay, I speak truth. With love. So anyway, but I'm like, I don't. You know what? I don't. I don't know. I don't. Maybe that person. Maybe their wife's having a baby. Maybe they have digestional issues and they need a bathroom stat. We've all been there, haven't we? Right. So so I'm like, I'm just saying, we have to be very careful because what we do when someone hurts us is we very quickly impute motives and then we come to conclusions of what they deserve. And I'm just saying, we're not qualified to do that because there's so much we don't know. I'll tell you one of the places we gotta be pretty cautious on this one with is uh, for example, like on social media. I think social media, you guys know this, social media is a wonderful thing that can be used for wonderful purposes, but can also be very dangerous, especially in the hands of a person who holds a grudge. How easy is it to sit in the place of God, to peer into the lives of people, And to impute motives, I know why she did that. She just posted that because she wants attention. Oh, I know why he did that. He just thinks he's better than everyone else. Actually, no, you don't know that. And I don't know that either. God, forgive us for the times that we sit in his seat, try to occupy his chair. Joseph says, "I'm I'm not qualified, not qualified. I'll tell you something else too. I'll tell you another reason we're not qualified to sit in God's seat. I think the other reason we're not qualified to sit in God's seat is because... Honestly, I think for most of us, when someone hurts us and harms us, we don't actually want justice, not really. Like when someone hurts us, sometimes there's a need for justice in our hearts. And I think part of that comes from a very healthy place. It's a good thing to want justice. God is a God of justice. Let's be honest, when someone hurts us, come on, we don't want justice, we want vengeance. It's very different. Listen to the songs that we sing. Look at the movies that we watch. I have yet to hear a song on the radio that goes, you hurt me, right? So now I want you to be rehabilitated in a healthy way. Like, first off, it's a terrible song, right? And secondly, like, nobody feels that way. What are our songs? It's too late to apologize. Those are our songs right? Every Carrie Underwood song in existence. You hurt me, I'm going to kill you. What are our movies? Our movies are, you punch me in the face, I'm going to shoot you in the face with a rocket launcher. And we all say yes and amen. I love that movie. And I'm just saying part of the reason we're not qualified to sit in God's seat is, come on, let's face it, we're messed up too. We don't know what justice looks like because we're tainted in our own sin and our own view of things. So Joseph says, I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified. But then here's the bigger thing. I think Joseph has also found, I'm not qualified to sit in God's seat, but here's the bigger thing. I don't have to sit in God's seat. I think Joseph has found the liberating freedom of the reality that we don't have to play God. It's interesting. You ever notice the the difference between the disposition of Joseph and his brothers? It's fascinating. His brothers are full of worry, full of anxiety, full of fear, trying to control the circumstance. And what's Joseph like? What's his disposition? I think you see a pretty good picture of it in verse 21. Joseph said to his brothers, again, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them. And look, he spoke kindly to them. And I'm just saying, you know, when I read this, man, wouldn't you love to be a person like that? Wouldn't you love to find that kind of freedom? Wouldn't you love to be that free? Here's Joseph, man, he's free of worry, free of anxiety, free of bitterness, free of resentment, speaking to the people who inflicted the worst injustice on him of anyone in his life. And he looks at him, he says, I'm gonna take care of you. Speak kindly to you. What has Joseph found? Here's what he has found. He has found, I'm not qualified to sit in God's seat, but he has found the incredible freedom. I don't have to sit in God's seat. See, for some of us, I think God would look at us this morning in our worry, in our anxiety, in our bitterness, in our resentment, and I think God would look and he would say, hey, hey, look at me. You're in my chair. Let's be honest. You're not qualified to sit there. Why would you want to sit there? You don't have to. So why don't you let me be God? And why don't you go ahead and be my son and my daughter? Because if you live a life fully dedicated to me, I will take full responsibility. I think God would look at some of us and our worry and our anxiety, and he would just say, hey, you don't have to do that. You don't have to live under the tyranny of a sense of control, because let's be honest, you don't really have it anyway." So why don't you let me sit in that chair? Let God be God so that you can be you. And Joseph has this incredible perspective. God is with me, and he defends me. As the band to come up, and as they uh, settle in, you know, my, my, my big prayer and my big hope in all of this is, is really this: My hope is that this morning that I can just be helpful to you. I just want to be helpful. And um, so what I want to do as we close out is I actually want to give you three very practical next steps that you can take in light of today's conversation. So if you find yourself full of anxiety, full of worry, in a place of bitterness or frustration or grudge, I, I just I want you just to maybe think through these three things, three, three ways that I would encourage you to navigate through that. Here, here's the three things I would encourage you to do. Number one is this. I would encourage you to actively work to replace your perspective, our perspective with Joseph's perspective, Okay. Joseph's perspective, am I in the place of God? I think we need to continually come back to this place. One of the best ways you can do this, I believe, is through scripture memorization. It's actually a really powerful thing. Uh, Maybe memorize Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. Am I in the place of God? Whenever you find yourself in a place of worry or bitterness or whatever, just ask the question, "Am am I in God's chair right now? God, help me to get out of this chair. Help me to let you get back in it. And then let me trust you with the outcome. I think we need to replace our perspective. Here's the second thing I would encourage you to do. Replace worry and anxiety with prayer. Replace worry and anxiety with prayer. And here's what I mean by that. Um, If you look at the book of Philippians chapter four, it says something really fascinating. Here's what it says. Don't be anxious or worried about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and then the peace of God, which transcends understanding, is going to guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, here's what I think is really insightful from the Apostle Paul. The Bible never tells us to just stop worrying, to just stop being anxious, to just stop holding a grudge. The Bible always tells us to replace it. Replace it. And replace it with what? He says, don't be anxious about anything, but instead pray, pray. Replace it with prayer. Now, I think this is really insightful because the Apostle Paul recognizes that there is a connection between worry and anxiety and bitterness and grudges and prayer. And what is the connection? Well, if you think about it, they're actually kind of the same thing. They're sort of the same thing. The only real difference is who you're addressing. Worry, bitterness, what is is that? That is me petitioning myself Over and over again, I'm looking to myself, trying to determine what's gonna happen and what needs to happen. That's what I'm I'm looking to myself to solve it. What is prayer? Prayer is changing the address. You're just saying, God, this is yours. God, you're the one who occupies that. This is on my pay grade. I'm trusting you with my frustration towards this person. I'm trusting you with my anxiety and worry about these things. I don't need to look to myself and petition myself over and over again to solve it because that's not my place. So I can worry about following you and then you can worry about the rest. That's what you can do. You can trade it. Here's the third thing. I would encourage you to replace isolation with community. Now this one is so important. I have found that like bacteria in mold grow in darkness, Bitterness and worry and anxiety grow in isolation. Man, you get alone with your thoughts. You get to a place where your conclusions that you're drawing are unchecked, where no one can speak truth into the decisions that you're making. You're in a very dangerous spot. If you wanna find true freedom and increasing freedom over these things, I think it happens in Christian community. Community is one of the best uh, avenues that God has provided for us for us to grow. If you you don't have someone in your life that can look at you and say, you're you're thinking crazy right now, then you don't have proper community in your life because that's what we need from each other. Other people to speak into your life. Some of you are nudging your spouse right now. You're like, you tell me that all the time, right? Besides your spouse, right? Someone that can look and say, man, that's not what God, come on, come on, that's not, come on. This is what God said. If you don't have that, you need that. This is why we do things like life groups, Here at the Medina East Campus, this is why we always tell people, if you're not in a life group, get in a life group, right? We always tell people you're getting less than half of what grace has to offer if you're not connected. So replace isolation with community, as hard as it might be sometimes. It's an important step in those things. So finally, at the end of the day, it boils down to this. How would your life look different? How would your circumstances look different? How would someone in your circumstances act if they truly believed, God is with me and he defends me? Let's pray. Well, God, we just wanna say thank you for this truth that you've shown us here this morning. You are with us and God, you can occupy a seat that none of us can occupy. None of us know the future. None of us even know what's best for ourselves, but we have to trust that our heavenly father will provide for us what, what we truly need. So God, would you help us to get out of your seat? We're not qualified for it, but quite honestly, we don't have to. Why would we choose that? Why would we choose worry and anxiety and bitterness when there's a different option provided for us? So God, thank you for the freedom that comes in being able to follow you. I pray that you would help us, God, as a result of today's conversation to be changed. Help us to walk out with a burden released. We could pass it to you. Help us in these next moments to open our heart. And God, to be honest with you, to speak honest with you, and to give to you what only belongs to you. we pray these things in Jesus' name.